I want to take just about five minutes and talk about this whole situation with the Anaheim Vineyard. Because, because Brooke told me I had to. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk about Alan. I want to talk about Jesus. But I need to. And so I don't want to, this is not a time, we're not going to have a long discussion about it. I just want to share a couple of things briefly. And so that you know where we are coming from, I was on the board of the Anaheim Vineyard for years. I was on the board with Joe Gillentine, with, uh, at that time, his son Jamie Gillentine, um, Jurgen. I don't even remember all the board. Board members changed as I was on the board. I think, Dave, you were on the board. We were at the same time, yeah. Um, and I, have been a, I was a part of the Anaheim Vineyard for, for about 40 years plus. That's a long time. And so is my wife. Yeah. And Brooke, um, Brooke was on the search committee that found Alan. In fact, she was probably the most vocal member, or one of them, of that committee. And Brooke was also um, not paid staff, but she was the junior high pastor, even after Alan came in. On top of all of that, I have had a lot of meetings. I have had people sit down with me at lunches. Even this last week, I have had people call me. I have talked to people here locally. I have talked to people uh, in Vineyard leadership with the movement. So, and I'm one of the few people that actually knows the bylaws and knows how a board works, that board, and all of that as well, all the business stuff. So here's what I want to say. I, my biggest concern at this point in all of this, I had a really wise mentor one time tell me I was sitting at Starbucks with him, and I was, I was talking with him. I just couldn't get rid of all these resentments I had had. Anybody been like me? You're at church and someone's walking down the hallway, but you have resentment in your heart, so you walk down the other hallway Anyone ever done that? And I had a, and in my mind, I had a, and all my resentments in my mind, I would replay little courtroom scenes where all the evidence why I was right would be played and all the evidence why they were wrong would be played so that I get to justify myself. But what was building was resentment. And I asked him, I said, what do I do about this? I've never known how to get rid of resentment. And he said, he said I'm going to say one sentence, and if you can learn this, it will fix your life. And I said, what is it? And he says, here's what I've learned. If I am irritated, there is something wrong with me. Everybody say, if I am irritated, there is something wrong with who? With me. Because here's what would happen. I would be in conflict. A lot of my conflict has been with church leaders. Really high-level church leaders, too. And in my mind, I would have all the things that they said wrong and did wrong. And I would replay that in my mind. But here's the issue. Let's say 80% of the fault was theirs and 20% of the fault was mine. What do I have to focus on? 
What? Let's say 95% of the fault was theirs and 5% was mine. What do I have to focus on? I'm not talking about not resolving conflict. I'm talking about how do you live without resentment? Right? The other thing that, and, and, and so when you're in the midst either from the outside or in the middle of a conflict, you have to do what Jesus said. Before we get out our fingers and start pointing out the specks in other people's eyes, what do we have to do? Look at the log in your own eye. We have to do that. I am shocked. No, I'm not shocked because I've done it myself. All, many times in my life, how vicious people have become over this issue. They've gone from disagreement to utterly demonization of each other and leaders. And it's just plain evil. And, and at this point, at this point in this conflict between Vineyard and Allen's church and the leadership involved and everybody online back and forth, people need to step back and say, okay, Paul said, don't take church conflicts to secular courts. Why? He said, because when you have a conflict in the church, everybody needs to get into the throne room, stand before God, and work it out with his presence down on that thing. Does that make sense? You ever been before God? You might want to talk about this, and maybe God might want to talk about this part of your heart. Well, Lord, what about this and this and this? And the Lord says, can I talk about your heart for a little bit? Your heart. What this conflict has done is it has brought all kinds of people's estates of their hearts up to the surface. And I know it. What? Oh, yeah, I'm including me in that. You, six or seven times when I was in my car leaving meetings, I had to say, God, forgive me for what I said this. Forgive me, I gossiped. Forgive me, I embellished. Forgive me, I misrepresented. I had you like six or seven times just this week in my car driving away from meetings. You know what I'm saying? I want to talk about them, and God wants to talk about me. All I'm saying is stay out I don't want anyone in this, I can't, I'm talking to you guys right now. Stay, we need to stay out of the accusation business. The, the people like to frame things in terms of all black, all white, in terms of all wrong, all right. And I'm just telling you, and anybody ever been married? Whether it's two married people or two massive church movements, I have seen the behind the scenes of enough of them. It's never just one-sided. Now, maybe it is 80% on this person and 20% or 95 and 5, but it's never all black and white. It's just because we're dealing with people and people that want to reframe things so that they're right. And God says, I I'm into stuff being right. I'm also into loving one another. Do you know what Paul said when he said, don't think, take things to secular courts? Have you guys ever read that in Corinthians? You, do you know where, where, where Paul, or, or in Philippians, where Paul said some lady named Seneki, Synecdoche, Eudodia, I forgot the names. Paul says, they, they're keep, these are my co-laborers and they're in a war. 
Paul says, whatever you can do, help them get out of the war. And then he says, because their names are written in the book of life. You might say, why would Paul say that? Because they're going to live forever with each other. Listen to me. I believe Alan has made some pretty horrifically bad decisions. By the way, have you ever made horrifically bad decisions? But he's a brother in Christ. He hasn't denied Jesus. He's not teaching a, a, a cultic doctrine. He hasn't denied any orthodoxy. Do you understand what I'm saying? Doesn't mean I agree with his decisions. But he's a brother in Christ. You are going, you are going to spend eternity with him. That, that means that it, you can disagree with a brother. You cannot agree with them, but we don't want to demonize one another. I mean, all those verses where Jesus just shredded on Judas, have you guys read all those? Like chapters and chapters where Jesus just tells us what he thinks of Judas. You guys read all those? Chapters! Chapters! I'm, I'm not calling Alan Judas. What I'm saying is, is the way that Jesus modeled for us do you understand what I'm saying? He didn't, he didn't even, you, where do you find, and Jesus didn't just gloss over stuff he disagreed with, right? All I'm saying is, is that love is as important as truth. Okay, a couple more things really quickly. Um, I have seen all kinds of accusations about where the search committee got it wrong. I, I know people on the search committee that said, man, we blew it. We shouldn't have picked him. Yeah, God, when God picks somebody, they only are perfect after that. Like, I don't know. Let's just find somebody he picked. David? Hey, apart from adultery and murder. Let's see. He, did he pick Saul? Oh, wait, he picked Saul. Moses? Oh, yeah, Moses, he just would just, you know, God said, you're such a bad leader, I'm not going to let you in the promised land. But did God pick him? Of course, God. God, just because God makes a choice doesn't, make that, doesn't mean that the choice of that leader is going to be perfect afterwards. Right? Here's the, here's the lanes. If you leave these lanes, you're in trouble. Humil Everybody say humility. You leave that lane, you're going to be in trouble. Everybody say transparency and honesty. It is easy to take a, a little kernel of truth, but by the time you present it, you present it in such a way that it's a falsehood. Do you hear what I just said? On both sides, there are narratives out there that have kernels of truth, but the way they're being presented have now been framed, and they are falsehoods on both sides. Honesty. Honesty is like, okay, this part of the truth helps my case. This part of the truth does not help my case. But what's our goal? Just tell the truth. Honesty. It's a lane, right? Um, everybody say love. That's a lane. 
you get you leave the lane you're going to be in trouble well yeah but i don't have to love my enemies one is someone in the church is not is never your enemy they're your brother and sister i'm telling you i i torpedoed an entire when i went to tibet we had 15 people on our church planning team our leader had serious issues. I typed up four typed pages of accusations. And I submitted it to the head of the missions board in Hong Kong. And the whole group got torpedoed. He got pulled off the field. Our group ended up disbanding. I look back at that now. My, my, everything was framed about me being right and him being wrong. You know what this leader told me? We were in Thailand. And he said, Sam, I'm not denying some of those things you wrote. He said, but I just wish for you that you wouldn't be such, that justice and truth and judgment wouldn't be the only thing. I wish that you would be able to just add mercy, grace, and love. I could have used you loving me as well. At that point, I, dis I dismissed it. Now I look back years later, and I thought he was right. Does that make sense? I, um, and interesting, that list that I wrote about that team, about that leader, I took things that were observations, but I added assumptions and called it fact. I, this leader, I saw him, uh, there was, I had heard that, I'm not going to go there. I just, there were things that I saw, but I, looking back, I added assumptions to what I saw, and by the time I presented it to the leadership, I called the whole thing fact. Truth. Everybody say truth. If you get out of that lane, you're going to be in trouble. So here's the lane we have to stay in. Everybody say humility, transparency and honesty, love, truth. Those are the lanes we need to stay in. Please, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. I'm not saying don't address conflict. I'm not saying don't address disagreement. Half of the New Testament is how to address disagreement and conflict. But that is different than when we get, in, when we get into the territory of demonization and, and, and accusation. Right? The problem with social media is Jesus says, here's how you deal with conflict. But in social media, people get angry and they process all this in a context that there's no way to win. Does that make, do you guys understand what I'm saying? And I'm not saying you hide stuff, you sweep stuff underneath the carpet. But I'm saying if you see mistakes, if you see leaders making bad choices, how do you deal with it? And I'm going to tell you how. Read this book, Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. How David dealt with Saul and David dealt with Absalom. A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards. If you've never read that, then you're just missing something. It is the, one of the best books on how to deal with leaders that make horrible decisions Leaders that do terrible things, how do you deal with them? Right? 
When Saul threw spears at David, how many spears did David throw back? None? Not even one? He did take out a knife and cut off a piece of cloth off of Saul. Then what did he do? He repented. It's just these are things. I, I am more interested about us than about them right now. They're going to have to work out this, this, this issue. Last thing, though, I do want to mention this, and I'll finish with this, because I really did want to get into Luke. <laughs> about transparency. And this is for us as a church. Prophecy, the moment you say God has spoken, that's a serious claim. Does that make sense? The moment you say God has spoken, that's a serious claim. So Paul says it is so serious, you never, everybody say never, you never manage it privately. Prophecies are always managed openly. Always. Peter said prophecy is not of someone's private interpretation. Paul said if someone prophesies, let everybody weigh it. Paul says test prophecy. Let everybody test it and hold on to what's good and forget the rest. Right? All I'm saying and I'm not jumping into this conflict between the two groups. Well, all I'm saying is this. One of the largest mistakes Alan has made, and the bo his board has made, was they said, we got prophecies that God told us to leave the vineyard. Now, I am not going to be a judge of whether that's right or wrong. I know lots of people are being judges of that. But what they should have done was, was in front of their whole congregation and in front of the whole vineyard movement. Hey, guys, here's a bunch of words we got. We got this prophecy and this prophecy, and, and here's what, and they, they might say, well, and here's some confirmations we got. This was confirmed this way and this way, and this is how, and so we're, we're looking at all this, and we actually think God is asking us to leave the movement. And, 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 and then in front of everybody, Let's weigh this together. Hey, Jay Pathak, look at what are these words. Hey, hey, my own congregation. And because we're talking about the, the, the founding church, hey, entire vineyard movement, look at these words we got. And look at the people who gave us the words. Jesus says, if somebody is going to prophesy, you know a prophet by their what? You get Sermon on the Mount? You know a prophet by their what? Fruit. You, when you go from just human opinion to prophecy, you need to say, this person gave the word. And let, them, let the fruit of that person be weighed. This is really important. This church, over time, we're, we're going to have a prophetic history. And as words come, as words are confirmed, we need to share them and weigh them. This is what John Wimber did with the very first prophecies of the Vineyard Anaheim, Calvary Chapel, Yorba Linda, at that time. Right? That is critical. Because look at what a mess happens. 
What if there are a bunch of prophecies and confirmations? I don't know what God is saying or not saying to them. But the, the only way to weigh something is to always do it openly. So nobody in this room gets to go somebody and whisper a prophecy in private or whisper a word in private. You know what comes of stuff like that? Destruction. Now, it doesn't mean that sometimes personal prophecies might be sensitive in regards to a person's past. Does that make sense? But then it would always be the person giving the word, that person, and some other leaders there. I don't ever want someone with a prophecy to pull somebody alone and give them these directive words or penetrating words because you don't do, you don't do God's word privately. What's the Bible? It's published prophecies, right? So the whole world can read them? And that's the way it should always have been. So, okay? Okay. Announcements? So you guys, we're going to keep going through the book of Luke. My hope is as we go through the book of Luke, we want to learn about Jesus, but why? To fall in love with him. I mean, really, the goal is, is and just again and again and again to find ourselves following, following in love with Jesus. He's just so amazing. So we're going to keep doing this, and uh, we're going to read a passage out of Luke 22. And it says, and this is Jesus now. Last week we looked at, did we look at the Lord's Supper last week? The Last Supper? Yeah. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what do you notice? What jumps out at you guys in this passage? Just what do you notice? You can, someone tell us. What strikes you? Yeah? The word temptation. Twice, it opens and closes. Pray that you won't give in to temptation. What else did you notice? What jumped out at you guys in this? He was what? Jesus was in anguish. Notice that. Yeah. I mean, have you ever been in so much despair that really the only thing you're going to do is sleep? What else? What else do you guys notice? Yeah. Jerry. Submission. Submission. Yeah, he knelt down. And we'll look at it in a minute. The Jews always stood when they prayed. There's a reason he knelt. What else did you guys know? What else did you notice about this? What struck you? 
That's some serious sweat. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, I noticed that. He bothers to mention this was a habit of Jesus's. Yeah, right here. Some people are afraid to, tell, to just be honest with God, right? You can, you can share with God the way you feel. Doesn't mean you're going to do that, right? So let's look at this. And, th- and this is what I want to zero in on first. It says, and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then in verse 46, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus knew that he was about to face the most severe trials pretty much imaginable for a human being. He knew that already. God had already shown him. And and while he was eating this, we looked at this last week. Remember the Passover meal with his disciples? And while he was eating that, he prophesied during that meal about what was coming. And he prophesied that he was going to suffer. It said in Luke twenty-two twenty-eight, you are those that have stayed with me in my trials. He prophesied that he was going to be betrayed. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. He prophesied that he was going to be killed. This is my body which is given for you. This is the cup that is poured out. That word poured out in Greek, it's to shed. The word for the shedding of blood is the verb he uses. For you is the new covenant in my blood. That's talking about him being killed or murdered. He knew that he was going to be not just be killed, he knew he was going to be killed as a criminal. For I tell you that it, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. All of this was during the Passover meal. But how did Jesus, knowing what was coming, how did he face it? How did he face it? It said he, after dinner, he went up to the Mount of Olives. Everybody say, as was his custom. That word custom, ethos in Greek, it's, it's translated or defined as a usual or customary manner, a behavior, a habit. A habit. The same word is translated as habit in Hebrews 10.25, where people were habitually not gathering with one another. That's where the word is used. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit, ethos, custom of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. Did Jesus have habits, yes or no? If Jesus needed habits, do we need habits? Yes. We really do. 
especially in a culture that is positioning human beings where everything needs to be based off of how you feel and doing things spontaneously. Everything. How do they get you to try to buy a car? By your emotions. If you, if you could feel it enough, then you can drop the 50 grand. Does that make sense? <laughs> and I'm telling you guys, I know, huh? Especially in difficulty and crisis, one of the things that will keep you steady with the Lord is your habits. How many of you have, have physical habits? Brushing your teeth, taking showers, unless you happen to be a 16-year-old son that we know. <laughs> He's better now. It's like, come on, Josh, it's day three. He's not here, so I can... We all have physical habits. And, and the goal is, is to ask God to help you so that you also have spiritual habits, like gathering together, like praying alone, reading the Bible, because when life gets insanely chaotic, painful, and crisis, it's hard to start habits then. Does that make sense? Let's look at the next verse, verse 39. And he came out and went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he said to them, verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That word prayer, Greek verbs have moods. Is it making a statement or is it issuing a command? Right? Well, this is called the imperative mood. Pray, it is a command from Jesus. It's not a suggestion. And Jesus, but Jesus, the Lord never just gives commands. If you've ever noticed this, God always will, he doesn't have to, but he always tells you the why behind the what. God will always give, he always, not always, but most of the time, he gives reasons for why, why he does what he does. He doesn't want robots. He wants people that have relationship and interact with him. So he says, pray, why? That you may not enter into temptation which is a word, Greek word, prasmos. And the reason I gave you the Greek word is because you're going to see how that word is used. It, this does not mean praying to avoid temptations. That is what the monks in the monasteries thought. If I can go into a cave and only see myself, no women, no money, no alcohol. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is not a prayer, Lord, to avoid temptation. Jesus had just told the disciples, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. The identical word that he just uses for temptation a couple verses later, parasmos. Yes, the word in Greek means temptation and trial. And, and, and often, sometimes, it means both at the same time. 
It is not praying to avoid them. It is praying to exit them instead of enter into them. But what does it mean to enter into temptation? It means that you give in and submit to it. You surrender to it. And especially in difficult times, the harder life gets, it seems like sometimes it becomes easier to surrender to those temptations. Unless you're just not like me. But what does it mean? What am I talking about? Here's what the Bible means. When the midst of temptation, it means, what does it mean to surrender to it? You start doubting God. You start, you, you stop trusting him. You stop following him. You grab onto something else but him. That's what it means. What did Jesus, the context of this is important because when Jesus says, pray that you don't enter temptation, all the disciples just heard what Jesus had said to Peter. It was just before this. And what did he say to Peter? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, but I had prayed for you that your what? Your faith may not fail. I have prayed. And then a couple verses later, pray that you might not enter temptation. Pray what? That your faith won't fail. That you don't stop trusting him. Jesus gave all of these warnings about giving in to temptation and what happens. Luke 8, 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in times of parasmos, testing, they what? They fall away. Here's what happens, and Satan's a real person. Anybody that denies Satan is real, just give me, they just need to give me two weeks, $5,000, and I'll take them to Tibet. And I'll take them to just one or two of the monasteries. As they're, when they pray, when their voices change, and all of a sudden it's demons, not human voice cords that are speaking. And, and overt demonic activity. Nobody doubts that Satan and demons exist in half the world except for maybe America and a couple places in Europe. What, what happens when Satan tempts us? Here's what it comes as. The temptation to, be, to hold on to anger, the temptation to rage, the temptation to lust, the temptation to give in to anxiety, the temptation to give in to lies, or all types of destructive attitudes and behaviors. Anybody ever done that? No, not you guys, just me. <laughs> but what is the real, what is Satan trying to do? What is the root of that? Is it really just an issue of lust or anger or lies or anxiety? What is at the root? It's to, it's to doubt God. It's to deny God. It's to not believe in God. It's to not trust in him. 
Even the temptations to Jesus was to get Jesus to doubt who he was. For 40 days being tempted, perazzo, same word in the verb, by the devil, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. What is he trying to do there? Do you guys understand what I'm saying? So how do you respond to temptation? Everybody say pray. But why? Have you ever tried to resist temptation in your willpower? I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to rage. Has anyone ever tried to do that in your willpower? How good are you at that? Anybody really good at that? I don't see one hand. You cannot resist temptation in your willpower. Maybe for a little while, but not for long. Only by God's will and God's power. So what is prayer? Why is prayer? Prayer is a way, everybody say submit. Prayer is a way to submit your will and your desires to him. To him. And submission is what this whole story is about. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Somebody mentioned this earlier. Jesus kneels. The literal Greek is to place the knees down, to pray. But Jews stand when they pray. I remember when I was flying to Israel on LL Airlines, and all the Orthodox Jews went to the portion of the airline that was closest to Jerusalem, and they all stood and prayed and did this. You guys ever seen this? That's how Jews pray. They go like this, and their little hair flaps back and forth. They do this. You guys have never seen that? That's what they do. They don't kneel. First Samuel 26, as you live, my Lord, I am a woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. Matthew 6, 5, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Kneeling was a posture of submission, of subjection, of coming under somebody. And a, a couple of examples, Romans 11.4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not, what does that mean, not bowed the knee to Baal? What does that mean? Submitted. For Clement, Clement was one of Paul's partners. He's mentioned in, first, in Philippians 4.3 where Paul said, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement. Clement wrote some letters. They're not in scripture. They're church historical documents. He wrote them between 60 and 97 AD when a lot of these guys were still alive. He was a disciple of Paul. And he, we have first and second Clement. And he said, you therefore, who laid the foundation of the sedition, submit to the presbyters and receive the correction of repentance. I should have said that when I talked earlier. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Bending the knees of the hearts learn to be submissive right? Bending the knees. 
So what way was Jesus submitting to the Father? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What's the cup? The cup does not represent suffering. The cup represents judgment, wrath. It's mentioned everywhere, this idea of the wine of God's wrath being poured out. Judgment for sin. Giving people what they deserve. Psalm 11.6, let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. You might say, well, David, David is really accusatory in his Psalms. You're not reading them correctly. Here's what David did to people that were really mean to him. He said, Lord, I give them to you. You deal with them. What is, notice the difference? He says, I'm not going to accuse them. I am not going to go to war against them. I am not going to make it me versus them. He said, Lord, I'm going to put that situation and them under you. It's awesome. It's just giving it over to God. That's what all those Psalms are about. Your NIV might say the word lot, portion of their lot, but it's not the word lot. In Hebrew, it's the word cup. Isaiah 51, 17, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the what? Cup of his wrath. You might say, well, I don't like this idea of justice where God gives people what they deserve. You have not thought through what happens in a universe where nobody gets what they deserve. But that's a whole other time. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Revelation 14.10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Jesus was not afraid of death. Jesus wasn't afraid of all the pain that was coming. He wasn't. Jesus didn't want to bear the wrath of God. He didn't want to experience that separation from his father. He didn't want to have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, the, and Jesus bore the wrath because he was such a sinner, right? He took the judgment because he was so horrible, right? Then why did he take the judgment and the wrath? Because we were horrible. We were the sinners. He did it in our place. But he didn't want to. Not because he didn't want our salvation. He literally didn't want to experience the wrath of the Father, the punishment that we deserve, the separation. It wasn't something he wanted. He says that. Take the cup from me. Right? Jesus was fully man and fully God. Being fully man, he had a human body, a human mind, a human will. He wasn't like a, an avenger, a hybrid. He was fully a human being and fully God. Now, his human will was distinct from the divine will. His human will was never contrary to the divine will. Does that make sense? 
He always submitted the human will to the divine will. He says it in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. He does say I have my own will. But the will of him who sent me. Right? So in the prayer in the Mount of Oz, Jesus is saying, I don't want to drink the cup, but I will drink the cup. Why? Because I want to? No, because the Father wills it. He was submitting to the Father's will. And he knew, listen to me carefully, God willed at that time that he would suffer. He would be maligned. He would be criticized. He would be tortured. He would be murdered. And not just die, but death die bearing the judgment for our sin. He knew all of that. And he did what? He did what? Submitted to it. He submitted to it. Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes God's will for you is not going to be comfort, security, and happiness. Sometimes his will for you is going to involve trials, pain, and suffering. But whether, it, whether it's a bunch of comfort and ease or whether it's pain and suffering, if it's God's will, submit. The Bible says it again and again and again and again and again and again. Look at this example, Acts chapter 21. When we heard this, we and the people were urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Because a prophet had just said, when you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, imprisoned. <coughs> Prophecy, the question is not, is it negative or positive? The question is, is it true? New Testament prophecy in this. A guy named Agabus, look it up later. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, here it is, let the will of the Lord be done. That whole group had to get to a place of submitting. Peter said, 1 Peter 3, 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be what? Than for doing evil. He said it again, the next chapter, four, verse 4, chapter 19, or verse 4, yeah, chapter 4, verse 19, therefore let those who suffer What? according to God's will and trust their souls. By the way, that phrase, and trust their souls, Peter grabbed it when Jesus said, into your hands I entrust or commit my soul or spirit. Peter grabbed it and said, I want you all to do it now. What Jesus said on the cross, Peter said, that phrase, and trust your souls, is from that. He's quoting him. To the faithful creator by doing good. 
But it's the last thing I want to look at. It's not just about submitting to God's will. God will strengthen you to submit. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. By the way, verse 43, it's not just a little side note. Verse 43 is the point of the story. Everybody say the point of the story. Sorry about what I'm about to say. I'm a little bit of a nerd. Stories and a lot of stories in scripture, the meaning is not just in what they say, but in how they are structured. And there's something called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And maybe you've seen this before, like C or like A, B, C, D, C, B, A. And, and what, it, what a chiasm does is the beginning of the story and the end of the story actually point to the middle and the point is in the middle. The purpose is in the middle. The climax is in the middle. So the way that this passage is structured, pray that you would not enter into temptation at the corners, right? The sam- you see that? But how do you do that? How does God answer that prayer? Then you go to B, Jesus withdraws from the disciples, kneels and prays submission, and then B, he rises from prayer and goes to the disciples. And then you have him praying, but in the middle of the chiasm is the Father's answer. An angel from heaven appears. God answers Jesus' prayer not by removing the suffering, but by strengthening Jesus for the suffering. And that strength is to prevail over the devil and to submit to the Father. What happened after the angel strengthens him? You have to understand this. After the angel strengthens him, what happens? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. That is after an angel appears. So because of this divine strengthening, he went from praying to praying earnestly. Notice the difference? Do you guys notice the difference? But why is that earnestness important, that fervency important? Out of that angelic encounter, it says he was in agony. In agony. In Greek, agonia. That word agonia, yes, it can refer to Jesus' emotions. That, the Greek word isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament, that exact Greek word, but it's used in other places in Greek literature. And it can mean anguish or distress. Second Maccabees, a Jewish historical book from the second century BC uses that word agonia. To see the appearance of the high priest was to be wounded at heart for his face and the change in his color disclosed the anguish, agonia of his soul. Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian from the first century, uses that word. And Jadua, the high priest, when he heard that was in an agony, agonia, and under terror, as not knowing how he should meet the Macedonians, since the king was displeased at his foregoing 
obedience. But here's what I want you to understand. This little word, agonia, doesn't just refer to emotion. It refers to determination. Determination. What do I mean by that? It's from a root word, agon. Agon means to fight. Agon means to be in conflict. The verb, agonizomai, means to fight, to engage in conflict. And those two words, the noun agon and the verb agonizomai, are used everywhere in the New Testament. It is always translated as fight. Fight, agonizomai, the good fight, agon of faith. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Agonizomai, to join me in my struggle, my fight, agonizomai, by praying to God for me. He is always wrestling, agonizomai, in prayer for you. So after the angel strengths Jesus, a lot of scholars do not translate this phrase as Jesus was in agony. A lot of scholars translate it as Jesus was in combat. And that is not a wrong translation. It's probably the best translation. Jesus was experiencing distress because after the angel touches him, he goes into intense combat to overcome Satan. When he prays in agonia and more earnestly, that is not a picture of despair. That is a picture of victory. And how do we know this? How do we know that it's speaking of Jesus in spiritual warfare overcoming? Because the context, what does Jesus say immediately before this and immediately after this? Just before it, he tells Peter, behold, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. He's aware of satanic activity. Just after this, Luke 23, 22, 53. But this is your hour and the power of what? Darkness. This is framed in spiritual warfare. Now, the text doesn't say that Jesus sweated blood. The Greek is very clear. It says his sweat was like drops of blood. There was so much sweat, it's like when you cut yourself and all that blood comes out. That's what it was like. It's, it, it wasn't, but the sweating like blood, listen to me, it wasn't just a result of his anxiety. It was a result of the angel strengthening him for battle. Submitting to the Father instead of submitting to despair. And so what Jesus does is Jesus wants his disciples to do what he was doing. And so Luke shows a contrast between Jesus and his disciples. And the contrast you get from this word from, this preposition, apo. Luke uses it twice. And when he rose from prayer, that little Greek preposition apo, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. Same verb, the same preposition. Jesus 
after the angel Jesus isn't kneeling in submission, it says he rises in prayer like a warrior, right? Like battle. While he rises from prayer, the disciples are sleeping from sorrow. And Jesus says to them, don't submit to despair. Do not submit to despair. Submit to the Father. Everybody see that? Because these are, your life, as much as you want it to just be only about your emotions and your relationships, you're not going to get out of this. Your life is engaged in spiritual battle. Why? Because it's not just about that relationship or how you feel or what happened. It's about Satan does not want you to keep trusting God. And he will position everything so that your faith would fail. And Jesus says, guys, I don't want you guys to do that. I remember Brooke and I, right after um, we got married, we were going to be in California for a long time just being a married couple, and a few months after that, we go to the mission field. Went to England for six months. We went to China. We went to Thailand. We came back to California. And then we ended up connecting with a church planning team in Tibet that I was with when I was single. And they were having a conference in Thailand in February of 1999. And we were going to go to the conference, join the team, move to Tibet, go to the university to study the language, and be involved in the church plant in a country where four million people and like at that point, 15 Christians. And those four million people are engaged in some of the darkest witchcraft imaginable. The whole nation. When we arrived at this hotel in Thailand, they were having, a, 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 out in the pool area, they were having all this, a big feast Everybody was coming from all, these were, in our missions agency, these were people from all over Asia that once a year were coming to see one another for the conference. So we showed up. I knew a lot of them because I had already been with this group years before. So everybody's giving me hugs. Everybody's, you know, asking me about my life. Brooke's with me. They are ignoring her. These are missionaries in Asia that most of them were socially awkward and unaware They were ignoring my wife. I mean, literally not acknowledging her. And, you know, a couple of times it's fine, but once you're like an hour into the dinner, once you're going into the night, it makes you feel stupid, right? And I'm super aware that they're being super rude to my wife. And I'm getting frustrated. She feels awkward. I'm getting mad at all the people. Like, why can't you guys just be nice? You all give your lives to preach the gospel, but you can't even be nice to people at dinner tables. Anyone know one like that? Anyone been like that? <laughs> On top of that, they were older. I mean, most of these people were 15, 20, 25, 30 years older than us. Brooke, you were, what are you, 19 at the time? Brooke was 19. Like the next youngest girl was probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 
That night we sat in our hotel room and Brooke was crying. All of a sudden we realized the isolation, the loneliness, the disconnection from community. And we had been traveling. Anybody ever travel a lot? You start to just feel kind of lost if you do a lot of traveling. There's no way around that feeling. Disconnected from people and places and countries. And she was crying. And I'm like, our first night on this adventure to be missionaries in Tibet, the team is rude, my wife is crying, and, and kind of, I, and I'm getting mad. And I'm like, I don't even want to do this. And I don't know why, sometimes I can go to be really negative really quick. I mean, Brooke never experiences that. <laughs> but sometimes. And I'm just almost in despair over this. Because I knew where we were headed and the isolation we were heading into. Not just with people. When you don't speak the language, you have no idea how alone you feel when you don't understand what people say. We fell asleep at 4 a.m. in the morning. At 4 a.m. And I'm not, this is true what I'm about to tell you. I woke up because I felt a presence in the room and with my eyes open, a flash of light went through the hotel room. And then I heard a voice. And you know what the voice said? Four words. Hold on, hold on. I I had been around long enough to know that when you see a flash of light like that in the room, that's an angel. When they describe, like when Ezekiel describes an angel, he goes, it was kind of like lightning. And when God says, hold on, it doesn't just mean grit your teeth and endure. I knew what he meant. Whatever happens... And I, I was totally unprepared for the suffering, trials, and temptations that we were headed into. It was far beyond what Brooke and I thought we were, was coming. What God meant was, no matter what, hold on to me. Do not let me go. You are about to head into a, a Category 5 hurricane for the next few years. Do not let me go. After that conference, we go up to Chiang Mai, northern Thailand, to see some friends, to see a friend. We spent all day touring the town. I don't know, did we do motorcycles and go to waterfalls? I think we did. We're in a hotel room that night. All of a sudden, Brooke says her eye really hurts. The pain starts increasing in her eye. It gets worse and worse and worse to where she starts crying because of the pain. I get out my flashlight. I look in her eyeball. There is a lump. I'm like, how do lumps that large appear underneath your eyelid? Our plane ticket to Tibet was the next morning. And I had already been in hospitals, third world hospitals in Asia. I'm like, we can't go to a hospital in Chiang Mai. They do more harm than good. And I'm like, we can't go to Tibet with a lump under her eye. And the pain was really strong. We prayed, we asked for healing, nothing changed. Finally, at like around midnight, Brooke fell asleep. I am full of anxiety. I don't know what to do. 
I said, God, what is happening? A lump just appears under her eyelid. And I could see it with back. And the Lord spoke to me. And he said, Sam, Psalm 107, verse 7. I hope that's the right verse. That's off my memory now. And I opened it up and he said, he led them by a straight way to a city where they could settle. And I felt like God said, Sam, submit to me. I'm going to get you to the city you need to go to. Don't worry about it. With no healing, I went to sleep. Woke up the next morning, it had disappeared. Her lump had disappeared. She was fine. We got on a plane and headed into glory and chaos for the next couple years. Everybody say submission. Submission. Stephen, you want to come on up?